Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today, we talk with Mark Yarborough. He is a recently retired Dean's Professor of Bioethics and Director of the Clinical Research Ethics Program of the Clinical and Transitional Science Center. He came to UC Davis in 2010 to conduct research at the intersection of public trust and biomedical research. His publications address a wide range of bioethical issues, such as genetic counseling, human subject research, the role of profit in medicine, and interprofessional ethics education. In this episode, we talk about the trustworthiness of biomedical research, how current academic metrics of success might not best serve the public interest, and the impact of biases in research, as well as what can be done to build a more hopeful future in the field of academic research. We hope you enjoy. Thank you, Professor Yarbrough, for joining us in this conversation today. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. Uh, it's, it's great to have a chance to sit down and talk. We would love to hear a little bit more about your story. How did you get to Davis? What got you interested in the ethics of biological research? And overall, how did you get where you are now? Yeah, okay. I'll try to give the... Um, the two-minute version instead of the two-hour version. <laughs> but um, my background and training is in philosophy, but I've done bioethics sort of my whole career. I went, I got my PhD from the University of Tennessee, and it was the first one in the country at the time to start a specialization in what was known as medical ethics at the time. And I, um, one of the first questions that I got super interested in um, as a grad student was whether or not you can ethically conduct, uh, medical experiments or, or clinical research on fatally ill children. Uh, because typically the way that clinical research works is the first thing we study is whether or not a new drug is safe enough to give to people. Uh, and then if you can discover through clinical research that, yes, we can give it safely to people, then you increase the dosage and ask the next question is, is there scientific reason to think that it might actually be beneficial? So, uh, and typically you do the safety part on healthy adults who can give consent, but like for pediatric cancers, you can't really, the only way to answer the safety question is to give it to young kids. So, but those young kids, the, the, at the time that this, uh, that, that I was in grad school, usually the dosage, sorry for diving into the weeds so much, but no. it's a, you know, it's, it's sort of a fascinating quandary is, uh, the dosage that you give in those earliest trials to study safety, even if the drug is going to later prove to be effective, the amount that's given is so small that even a therapeutic drug is not going to have a therapeutic effect because you're not giving it, uh, you're not giving the, the child enough of the drug, but you are giving them enough to, for them to experience any toxicities mm -hmm. that they're going to have, because it can typically can take a lower amount of the drug to trigger a toxicity. 
So, you know, you're having these really young kids uh, being exposed to very serious harm, and they're not going to benefit in any way. So it, it sort of posed that the philosophical question that arose out of that, that that sort of captured my imagination was, what are the conditions under which we can use one person to help other people? Hmm. Uh, and typically the answer is, well, so long as the person gives consent, then it's okay because they are agreeing to be you know, to make themselves available as an object of study to help people in the future. But that, that you know, consent is not there as, as sort of a safety parachute uh, when you're talking about this kind of research with young kids. So I just found that to be, you know, an extremely uh, interesting intellectual problem and issue. So, so that's what got me interested very early on in my career in the ethics of research, as opposed to the ethics of patient care, hmm. which is where most of the field of medical ethics was uh, when it first got started. Um, and then, so um, at the very outset, once I, um, I spent 25 years at the University of Colorado Denver and the medical school there. And at the very outset, I served on what's known as an institutional review board, which is an oversight committee uh, that any institution that gets federal money to conduct human subjects research, they have to have this oversight committee called an IRB. So because I was interested in the ethics of research, I was on one of those committees. And, and this is the second really interesting question uh, that sort of consumed a lot of my time and energy, which eventually brought me to Davis. So it's, it's why I'm taking so many detours here. But um, one day the FDA came in and, and did an audit of our institutional review board. And basically they shut down uh, the review board because it it essentially was not putting enough institutional resources in, in terms of staffing and all so that our committee could demonstrate that we're actually doing what we are supposed to be doing. And so that shut down all clinical research. It was like two or 300 clinical trials. Um, and the day after the shutdown, the chancellor of the university and the dean of the medical school, they sent an email to the entire university and university hospital and said, don't worry, we're going to survive this shutdown and we're going to emerge as a model of integrity when it comes to research and how we conduct our research. And I was director of the Center for Bioethics and Humanities there at the time. So, you know, that was music to my ears. Ah, you know, the two chief uh, institutional officials are saying we want to be a model of integrity, but also became curious. It's like, what do they think a model of integrity would be? And I didn't really know what the answer to that question was either. But for some reason, I sort of got this idea stuck in my head was that, well, if we can be confident that the people that drive by in their cars on the main uh, thoroughfare in front of the university hospital where so much research is conducted, if we can be confident that they deserve their trust when we ask them to participate in our research. That's probably as close to a model of integrity as you can get. And so, so then I became interested in the question, really, what makes biomedical research deserving of the public's trust? And 
does the research community actually repay the public's trust that the public consistently, year in and year out, uh, invest in biomedical research? Do they, does the research community actually repay the public with research that's deserving of their trust? And uh, there was an opportunity at Davis to come to the med school to an endowed chair position where I would have, you know, lots of freedom and opportunity to sort of pursue this question. So I came here in 2010 basically to try to answer that question. Do we repay the public's trust in our research with research that is truly deserving of their trust? So that's, you know, it's a long winded answer to how I ended up here and what I've been been doing. But that's, I'd say I probably spent 85 90% of my time just, you know, sort of thinking about that, that particular question. At a high level, do you think we perform research that is deserving of the public's trust? In a word? No. Um, I, you know, and it troubles me to say that. So let me qualify it a little bit. I, th I think if we were focused on that question as much as we should be, we should be able to say that, yes, the public can routinely trust, right, what we're doing and how we're doing it, because no system is perfect, right? There's always going to be a few bad actors and, you know, innocent mistakes and this and that. Uh, so you should, you know, it would be foolish for anyone uh, including myself to say, you know, that every instance of biomedical research should be deserving of the public's trust. But, uh, but, but we should be able to say that most of the time, mm -hmm. right, we're confident that the public, the public may not trust us, but we should be able to say most of the time the public should trust us or the public can trust us because we know what we're doing and we know how we're doing it. And we know that we're, you know, we're confident that we routinely are doing things in the right way. But the reason I answer the question no is, uh, well, there's lots of reasons to answer no, but I, everyone, you ask any, just about anyone in the research community, is the public's trust in our work important? And everybody's going to say, yes, of course it is, right? We couldn't do our work without their trust. Uh, so there's broad consensus that the public's trust is important. But you ask people, well, what makes our work trustworthy? There really is no consensus. So on the one hand, everybody agrees that, yes, the public's trust is absolutely vital. But we really don't know how to talk with much consistency about exactly why our research is deserving of the public's trust. And that to me is a huge problem because, you know, how can we be confident uh, that people can, uh, can trust our work or that we're deserving of their trust if we can't really articulate why we think uh, it is, in fact, deserving of the public's trust. So, in other words, I don't. Um, so that, not to belabor things too much, but that sort of one of the first things 
I looked probably the first thing I looked into was what with a group of colleagues from around the country. And I did this right before I came to Davis. Uh, uh, well, no, not right before three or four years before I came to Davis. We said, you know, biomedical research is not the only sector that requires the public's trust. Other people, you know, nuclear power industry, food industry, so on and so forth. So what do they do right to support trustworthiness in their work? And then so, so we looked at that and then I became interested. Well, exactly what is it that makes research trustworthy? And that's where I found there really is no broad consensus. Uh, and I sort of came up with some criteria and then I started investigating those. And it's just, you know, the more I go down this path, the, the less confident I am that the public can routinely trust, you know, our work. So that's why I reluctantly answer the question. No, mm -hmm. you know, I'd love to say yes. You know, I believe we should be able to say yes. I think we can say yes, uh, but it's just we're not there yet. Yeah. And could you explain the research process at a more operational level from concept and question to funding and performing the research to getting that research peer reviewed and anything in between? Can you explain how that's currently being done and any inefficiencies you see in that? Yeah. You know, I'm probably, I, I think you should ask someone in the, someone in the sciences could, you know, give a much better answer to that than I can. But uh, what I would say is um, just in general, our, our system, and by system, I largely mean, you know, higher ed. I'm not sure it's set up in a way to make that as, as sort of efficient and trustworthy as it could be. Um, and I say that because I think we have the, the wrong metrics in place. But, you know, to sort of give a real quick answer to your question, right, that the way that, you know, from 35,000 feet, right, someone develops a, um, is curious, right? So they start doing some research in the lab to get more information about what it is they're curious about. As they learn something, then you're able to develop a hypothesis, right? So once you have a hypothesis, then you can test the hypothesis. And if you learn something about that hypothesis and it has potential to be applied, you know, to some problem in society, then, you know, the research advances, the question gets a little more complicated, complex, more expensive to study. And then we do research to try to answer that question, right? Does it really have, can it be put to some good purpose? you know, outside of the laboratory setting. And, you know, and typically, you know, sometimes it might be the same person who starts at the very beginning and sees it all the way through. But lots of times you're going to, you know, one team is going to do one thing and then it gets handed off to another and so on and so forth. And, um, and you're always going to be dependent, almost always dependent on somebody being able to persuade somebody to give you money. So you can do your research, right? It's not like, uh, you know, I don't need anybody to give me money if I can go sit in my office or my corner, you know, and think about whether or not it's okay to use one kid in a clinical trial to benefit another kid. But if, if you want to, you know, answer a scientific question, you got to have funding, right? So that 
complicates things and brings in a whole set of uh, uh, challenges and hurdles. Um, but I, th I think something, if we're talking about the trustworthiness of our research mm -hmm. uh, and sort of the typical research trajectory and all of that, I think, I think what we should worry about is the ex whether or not we're using the correct measures or mm -hmm. metrics to see how good our research actually is. Mm -hmm. um, we and I, th I think we end up measuring secondary characteristics of our research as opposed to primary characteristics. Right? If UC Davis is interested in, you know finding cures for certain kinds of diseases. Uh, the way we measure, typically measure our success towards that goal is, well, how productive are individual faculty members, right? No one person is likely to come up with the cure for any disease. It's going to be, you know, uh, involve lots of people spread across lots of departments and institutions and working with communities and so on and so forth. But, you know, especially if someone's on a tenure track or something like that, well, we have to know how they're performing, right? And we're going to look at them on an annual basis, right? And we're going to look at how many publications they have, how many grants they get, and the thinking is, and it sort of makes sense, right? Well, if you're not any good, you're not going to have any publications. If you're not any good, if you can't persuade someone to fund your work, you know, you must not be very good. And if someone is willing to fund your work and if someone is willing to publish your papers, you must be pretty good. Well, what does that tell us exactly? It tells us that you're good at, you know, getting uh, writing grant applications that are going to get funded and writing up research results in a way that it, you know, uh, passes muster with peer reviewers. But we know that the peer reviewed literature is riddled with poor studies. Uh, and we know that grant funding agencies are extremely cautious and conservative and they like to do sort of incremental research, uh, as as opposed to sort of more interesting, uh, potentially groundbreaking research. So it's just a long-winded way of answering your question about the, you know, the current research uh, process. I would say we're using the wrong measurements to know whether or not we're actually uh, succeeding at what we want to succeed because, you know, we don't tell the public we're great at publishing articles. We're great at getting grants funded. You know, we're here to cure cancer, right? We're here to uh, reduce world hunger. Uh, we're here to clean up the environment. Uh, and that, yeah, that's what people want to do. That's what we're trying to do, but we don't really measure ourselves against, um, you know, those are comparable or more, more uh, outcomes that are more appropriate to knowing, right? Are we any further along today than we were five years ago or 10 years ago? What would some of those primary metrics be that we should be measuring against? Well, <laughs> look at uh, probably COVID booster shots are the most immediate example 
you want to know whether or not people's health is going to be better protected if they get boosted. Uh, what was studied was whether or not if you give this booster, uh, it has a certain biological effect uh, in the body that is associated with increasing your immune response, all right? Because it takes longer and it costs more money to find out if you get boosted, you're less likely to get sick or to die, mm. right? Uh, you can't study that in a few weeks, right? But you can study 10 or 12 mice or rats and look for this secondary biological response. And if you see the response you want, then you can persuade the FDA to approve this. And, you know, lots of times it works out. But, you know, it's not, it's not really, uh, it's all, the problem with studying secondary endpoints as opposed to primary endpoints is there are never any guarantees that the secondary endpoint that you hypothesize is associated with or even ideally causative of the primary endpoint. That's always left as an open question or frequently left as an open question. But we treat it as if, oh, if we do this, we're going to get the primary income we're interested in. And that's, you know, so to go back, you know, if our institution is laser focused on assessing its faculty by how many publications it has, well, what if we spend five, six decades focusing primarily on that without holding ourselves at least somewhat accountable to those prompt, uh, primary outcomes that we constantly tell the public we're working on? And that's what the faculty are interested in as well. People don't want to have to write 12 grants a year, you know, uh, and get, you know, a couple of funded every couple of years. That's who... <laughs> it's, you know, it's a crazy career. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's better than a lot of others, but still it's not, people aren't doing what they really want to do. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know how we get off this treadmill, but, mm -hmm. you know, it's the treadmill we're on. And I, and, you know, so you ask your question about the culture of research or the process, that's, you know, those are aspects of the process that I think steer us away from thinking about the trustworthiness of our work. When you focus on the primary metrics, say overall health, mm. not getting sick, are we able to assign causality when doing certain things? Say the booster, for example. If we were to focus on, oh, you don't get sick afterwards, aren't there so many other factors that in order to establish rigor in the research, we need to focus on the secondary metrics because you get the booster, your immune response is obvious and definitive. Mm -hmm. So how can we keep the academic rigor, but focus on the primary metrics and still assign causality? Well, you, you know, it's going to take longer, a lot longer to answer the question. You're going to need, uh, you're going to need to study people instead of rats or mice. 
uh, and you're going to need to follow them for a long time, and somebody's going to have to pay for that. Mm -hmm. uh, and nobody's going to want to pay for that, especially if they don't have to, right? And if the FDA will will give a company, a private company, the legal ability to sell a drug on studying secondary outcomes, you know, then that's what people are going to do. But I think there's another uh, really interesting part to your uh, thinking about your question is um, <laughs> just generally speaking, I think you can say that biological science, you know, we tend to think of science, you know, science is science, but science is not science. And biological science is not rocket science, right? We can use math and computing uh, technology and other things to shoot a rocket to the moon, fly it back, and, you know, and make sure that it comes back and lands on, you know, a 10 square meter, mm -hmm. uh, you know, or hits a runway, right, uh, in one part, in a precise part of the world. Uh, studying human disease and developing effective treatments uh, for the, it's a completely different enterprise, right? And just because we understand the biology of something, that you know, uh, there are all kinds of social, environmental, um, metabolic, genetic, psychological, you know, all of those factors contribute to any individual's uh, state of health, right? And Aristotle said there is no science of individuals, but that's sort of what we're trying to do in contemporary bi uh, human health or, or biomedical research. So we're trying to, you know, say that we can have a science of individuals. You know, we talk about precision medicine and, you know, specifically uh, tailored uh, medicines. And we're, you know, we're making a lot of progress in that respect, but... Uh, but answering that causation question, I mean, per, I may be wrong about this, but personally, I would be hugely skeptical of a scientist who's confident that they're going to definitively answer a causation question hmm. based off of a chemical compound that you give someone or, or a genetic medication. You know, they're... There are always going to be exceptions, but, uh, you know, we're just, you know, people are complex systems, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and, and in order for simple theories of causation to work, you'd have to believe such a reductionistic view of the world that, you know, and I just don't think there's any evidence to suggest that, you know, reductionism is true. For sure. Although it, it's impossible to refute a reductionist because they can, well, we just haven't studied a small enough part of the human body yet, right? We're going to get there. We're moving in the right direction. Let's keep looking. I want to touch back on something you mentioned a little bit earlier about mm -hmm. The, the academia process feeling a little bit like you're on a treadmill. Mm -hmm. Could you speak to the tempo of academia and whether the need to meet these deadlines, to write these grants, to constantly be coming up with these questions 
might impact the creativity and ability to look across different disciplines to solve these questions? Yeah, I'll I'll speak some from my own experience, you know, and as a philosopher, that experience was much different and is much different than my science colleagues. But, um, and also, I'll speak from the perspective of someone who was on a tenure track, as opposed to someone who's on a year-to-year contract. And a lot of people in the sciences are, are year-to-year, which just at, makes things even worse. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my whole ambitions in, you know, in grad school was, you know, I want to get a job teaching, right? And I was lucky enough to get one. I was even more lucky that it was a tenure-track job. So that meant, you know, <laughs> in some ways, a life of misery for seven years. It's like, oh, my God, am I going to, you know, am I going to have enough publications? Uh, am, am I, you know, going to – because really the research at the – unless students were, you know uh, – having sit-ins in the department chair's uh, office about, oh, my God, this person's a horrible teacher, right? The only thing that really mattered, you know, was your research productivity. Uh, So, oh, my God, I got to get these publications. Well, you know, I'm fascinated by whether or not it's okay to use kids in this kind of research. Well, what if nobody else is interested in that, right? What if no journal is out there that wants to publish that? Right. That's so. So that could be your first sort of compromise in a way. Right. I'm not sure compromise is the best. Well, that, that you know, that's a point of influence. Right. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to see where you can make a contribution that satisfies your peer reviewer so that it can end up in print. Mm-hmm on a topic that's of sufficient interest to, or of interest to sufficient numbers of other people. Whereas, um, number one, number two, the expectation is that our most productive faculty are going to be our most junior faculty. Hmm. Well, what are the chances (laughs) that we want someone straight out of a graduate program or straight out of, you know, two or three years as a postdoc to be, to know as much and have as much to contribute as somebody who's been doing it 25, 30 years. But the incentive, you know, 30 years into your career, what are the incentives? Not near as strong, right? So I always thought that there was just, uh, you know, that our productivity expectations of our junior faculty were totally skewed, you know? Uh, I mean, history sort of discounts that again, like, you know, you look at some of the classics and philosophy, people wrote them in their early twenties, which, you know, maybe just, I knew I was not very smart then. Right. Uh, Or I didn't feel like, you know, I had as much to contribute as, you know, 15 years in, um, so, you know, I'm not sure everyone would agree that, you know, we have too high of expectations of of our most junior faculty. But I've always thought this system 
was sort of skewed in that respect. Uh, that, because basically we have the same productivity expectations of junior faculty as we do senior faculty. And that, that just makes no sense to me. Um, but in the sciences, it's even worse because you have to get money as well as publications. You have to get grants. And then what if, and if you're lucky enough to get grants, then you're going to have graduate students and postdocs who are depending on you and your grants for their livelihood. And I, I don't know, I can only imagine what having that sense of financial pressure added to it. So that makes it even more difficult to be a risk taker. Mm -hmm. Right. You have, you know, what, what am, you know, where am I most likely to be able to submit a, uh, a competitive application? And I'm not saying that, you know, you can just fight, oh, there's a bunch of money over here, so let's go for some of that money, right? I mean, it's, you, uh, it's so competitive, you know, you can, and everybody has a very narrow sort of expertise, so you have to stay within your expertise, but... Uh, you can't follow your, you don't always have the liberty to follow your intellectual passion. You have to be influenced by hitting those metrics that will determine whether or not, you know, you keep your job. Yeah. And you talked about a couple of those metrics, which you could call biases, maybe. Mm -hmm. Could you speak to some of the methods to counteract them, both individually or at a broad scale? Um, you know, I don't really know how you would, how an individual could counteract them without being a huge risk taker, right? Um, I think we need to do more on an institutional level to, uh, you know, to take away some of that pressure um, but that's not going to happen unless the institutions move more towards focusing on the primary outcomes they're pursuing as opposed to just being satisfied with hitting the secondary outcomes, right? So sort of a chicken and egg kind of thing. Uh, and by the way, just, you know, <laughs> I, uh, don't get me wrong to a large extent, you know, nothing is better than, uh, you know, the life of a researcher in, you know, in higher education, right? And that, you know, you, you get to study really cool stuff about, you know, whatever part of the world or society you're interested in. And, you know, I mean, it, it's a dream job in that respect. It's just, it's a real, I think it's a really screwed up system that mm -hmm. we're, shackled with uh and it's not clear you know what it's going to take to change the system and it's you know and i think students sort of suffer from that because it's just hard to for faculty to focus on teaching you know although there uh, i've you know i know colleagues that you know they're they're as dedicated to their students today as P 
people were, you know, when I was an undergrad, you know, in a small liberal arts school with no pressures to publish or get funding. Mm -hmm. You know, some people just have an incredible passion for teaching and, and somehow or another they manage to do, you know, to do it all. Uh, but not everybody, you know, is so gifted. So, you know, I, I think the educational mission suffers as gets caught up. It also gets sacrificed mm -hmm. in this whole system. Earlier you mentioned, what if a journal doesn't care about the question I'm asking? Do you think the interests of journals create echo chambers in academia? Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I believe they do. Uh, absolutely. Um, but I may have my own biases there because I'm, I just know my own personal experience. The, uh, the more I've written about a lot of these issues around the trustworthiness of bi of biomedical research, the harder it's been for me to get things published in bioethics journals. I've had better luck with uh, medical journals and biological research journals than I have with bioethics journals. And uh, I, I think I could be completely wrong, but I think, uh, and this sounds like it's ironic, but uh, I think the field of bioethics, it sort of has always struggled around being too critical and coming across as too much as policemen and troublemakers. Um, and, uh, but I can just tell you from peer reviews that I've received that people basically come out and say, you know, you're too anti-research, you know, or you obviously don't know anything about, the way that human subjects research is overseen, right? Well, sorry, I've spent 30 years on those committees. You know, I know a decent amount, but it's, um, it's that a lot of the work in bioethics, you can't really do it if you question the science that you're studying, right? It's, uh, and, and I've, rightly or wrongly have become very critical about the quality of science. And if you question that, then the whole ethics falls, everything about the ethical conduct of research falls apart. Um, and then it's, um, so then you sort of don't fit into the typical bioethics box, so to mm -hmm. speak, and that, you know, well, our journal, we really want to talk about the safety of, you know, some um, new CRISPR-based therapeutic intervention, right? Well, they're not going to, if you question the scientific basis of, being able to use CRISPR to alter, you know, genetic structure and develop therapeutics uh, because, you know, the field, 
may not be conducting basic research with the rigor that it requires before you can make it to the clinical setting, well, then why are we thinking about these questions about therapeutic advances in CRISPR in the first place, right? And my whole career, you know, as an academic bioethicist is based on the ethics of CRISPR. So, you know, we have to accept that CRISPR is a legitimate way to study this disease. And I don't mean to say that CRISPR is not a legitimate way to study disease, but, but we just know that uh, there are lots of quality concerns at every stage of research that the peer review process is not uh, sort of weeding out of the research pipeline. And I think the bioethics community has largely just not been focused on that kind of stuff. So I can't even remember what the original <laughs> question was now, but it's like, you know, there's, uh, do you need to worry about there not being a journal, you know, for your work? Yeah. I think it, it can be a very legitimate process. Or you can find a journal that's the perfect venue for your work, but your faculty colleagues think, oh, that, you know, that's not a good enough journal, you know? Yeah. So, when, yeah, it, it sort of works both ways. When I hear you say that, I, I think about how people often attach themselves to their work, whatever discipline it is, academia, yeah. elsewhere. And if you're coming in and criticizing their work, they take it personally and then there's a defensiveness and then even more pushback. So I think if people were to be able to look at their work a little bit more objectively mm -hmm. and not take it personally, we could maybe get to a better place. Yeah. You know, I, um, <laughs> I think something that captures that and because, you know, I really have, I always struggle with it. Well, if you're being critical, how can you be critical of science without being critical of the people doing the science? And I think you absolutely can be and should be. Uh, and I like to use this analogy. It's like, if you quest questioning the flightworthiness of an airplane has nothing whatsoever to do with questioning the pot, the aviation skills of the pilot. Right. You can be the most piloted pilot in the world, but if it's a shitty aircraft, it's going to crash. Right. Despite your skills, you know, maybe you'll be able to pull it out. But uh, and I, th I think that's a part of the problem because, um, I've, you know, I've always tried to to be careful to make that distinction. Right. But but it's. I think a lot of people in the research community, it's difficult to to focus on problems without feeling personally attacked. Mm -hmm. And they shouldn't feel personally attacked. And if they do feel personally attacked or questioned, then that's so counterproductive to improving the status quo. You know, we have to uh, we have to get over. Uh, equating criticizing science with criticizing scientists. Mm -hmm. And we sort of have to also get over thinking that all the problems there are in science is just a few bad apples. You know, what if the orchard is unhealthy and that's why there are bad apples, right? But we, 
we never really focus much on the orchard. We just, when somebody gets in trouble, then we focus on them and they say they're a bad person. So we don't need to look anywhere else. We found the culprit and, and that's hugely counterproductive. I think that's as counterproductive as, as thinking that criticizing science is criticizing scientist is counterproductive. Kind of piggybacking off of that, that question yeah. of criticizing scientists versus the actual science. I'd like to talk a little bit about the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, it brought forth a major question in regards to medical research and the trustworthiness to the public. And it really put it on a spotlight, which yeah. led to what seemed like immediate national division. Mm -hmm. Could you speak about what about the research, the messaging, and the policy caused this and what the implications are moving forward? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I think... Uh I think COVID is a fascinating, and our response to it is a fascinating thing to look at. And I don't think we're, you know, I think we're going to know a lot more five years from now to, or maybe even 10 years from now than we do today and than we did two years ago. But um, I think in a way, COVID was sort of a perfect storm to create controversy and division and i'm just going to talk about myself for a second mm -hmm. but uh because i'm not alone uh you know i'm a pretty left progressive kind of individual most of the time and uh and covid was super scary right uh and then my perception maybe unfairly but it's like the guy in the white house has only wants to keep numbers, case numbers down, you know, hey, this is a truly global public health emergency. You should be taking it more seriously than you are. Uh, so, so, you know, I personally was in a state of a lot of mistrust of national leadership. Uh, and, uh, and then it was easy to sort of look to the scientific community where World Health Organization, NIH, whoever, right, well, at least they know what they're talking about and they're going to do, you know, and there are people there who are interested in this. Right. But other people, so I was sort of mistrusting of some people in positions of leadership and implicitly trusting in others uh, and other people, you know, the exact same thing. They, they may be highly skeptical of sort of the research establishment and have an affinity for whoever the president is in the White House at the time. Um, you know, so, so there was that was one opportunity for discord <laughs> and division. Um, but then what do you know? So my proclivities are to trust the people in NIH. They must know what they're doing. But then what do they do? They partner with Pfizer. Uh, Pfizer in 2009 received the largest criminal and civil liability in the history of the country at the time, $2.3 billion for doing really crappy, unethical uh, marketing of their products. It was like, who in their right mind would, <laughs> you know, want to partner with, you know, maybe 
from a production point of view or a scientific point of view, maybe it made sense to go with Pfizer, but it's like, why do we have to, you know, now you want to put an injection in my arm that, you know, has been made by Pfizer or Pfizer has been involved with. It's just, well, that creates a lot of mistrust and indecisions. You accelerate the approval process. In other words, you're going to, you know, have much less data than you typically do before you approve and start using a drug, even though it was, you know, conditional uh, approval or emergency use authorization. But, you know, uh, and then I think our messaging got way ahead of the science, you know, it very quickly became the common belief that you should be vaccinated not only for yourself, but for those you love, right? Uh, even, but the science, what was the science about? Does the vaccine prevent serious illness, right? No one studied if it prevents infection, if it prevents transmission, uh, but our public discourse, uh, people, I think, could easily infer that the vaccine was going to do all three of those things. And then, and if you, so therefore, if you don't get vaccinated, you know, you're just an asshole who doesn't care about other people. And a lot of the public wasn't there right there. You know, I'm, you know, I hate big pharma or I distrust the government. Uh, you know, you may be right or wrong in those beliefs, but if you don't get vaccinated, basically your own, the, the impact of that decision is for the most part confined to yourself. Right. And there was no science that suggested otherwise is my understanding. But then we come up with vaccine mandates and stuff like that. People have to choose between their job in some cases and getting a vaccine that frightens them or they don't trust or they don't think they need because you know one thing we know is people are going to get hurt for medications no matter how effective they are if you give it to enough people some people are going to have bad outcomes all right uh, so <laughs> and then there's a shutdown and all of that that you know uh was easy on people like myself oh i get to work from home and i make the same money Right. Versus other people, it might cost them their livelihood. Mm. Right. So, the, I mean, it was just I don't think you could have designed something to be more divisive, you know, than COVID and the public health uh, response to it. I uh, but I, you know, I don't really fault anyone for the decisions they made early on uh, because, you know, it was super dangerous and it was an emergency. Nobody under, you know. You got to make decisions with the information you have. But I think three years on, I, I think we're doing a piss poor job of trying to understand what we got right and what we got wrong. Uh, and, you know, and that's going to happen. Uh, but I think, you know, we should be more systematic uh, in trying to figure out what are the right questions to ask? How do we answer them? How do we try to get information from it? And how do we try to learn from it? But I think it's still way too political, you know? So it's just not, no one's really motivated to do that unless they have a political ax to grind. 
So I, they, you know, that's just my opinion, but yeah. uh, so, but yeah, it was, a, <laughs> it was a huge mess on the one hand, uh, a great success story to a certain extent on the other, and that, you know, it was a really quick development from, you know, sort of an idea to, to getting an approved drug. Although, you know, it built on many, many years, the MRNA, right, vaccines that, you know, it actually was building on a decade or more's worth of careful, uh, you know, preclinical research. It's not like it was overnight the way, you know, some of the press made it sound like. But mm -hmm. uh, but still, we got, you know, we got lucky and had a good outcome uh, in a lot of ways. But it was, you know, not everybody thinks we had a good outcome. But uh, could you speak more to the ties between research especially publicly funded research and private companies you mentioned nih and pfizer partnering mm -hmm. could you speak to the impact of those partnerships and also how transparent are these partnerships yeah well <laughs> i'll start with uh public polling data historically and this has continued even through COVID to a certain extent the most trusted sector by the public in the U.S. is biomedical researchers. The most distrusted industry, big pharma. <laughs> the vast majority of clinical research that leads to the approval of new drugs is big pharma. I think it's like 70 75% of the clinical trials that lead to new drugs. It's big pharma doing that. And uh, typically, I mean, some studies have shown that if you look at the patents that are used to inform the research of um, clinical trials that lead to new drug approvals, most of the research that leads to those patents, they're done in universities. And then private companies come along and commercialize uh, the benefits commercially from the discoveries that the patents, you know, uh, that are reflected in the patent. So they get to use those discoveries for their own private gain, right? Public pays for the basic research that leads to the applied research and private companies reap the benefits. That's sort of, in a way, how the system works. Um, and lots of times, you know, people, scientists, individual scientists, they'll go from university to private industry and back and, or, you know, they, some people are always in private industry their whole career. Other people are always in universities their whole career, but, you know, people do go back and forth. And, and I think people, um, like if you're in private industry, you don't have to publish, right? They'll fund your lab and look, take, I'm not sure they say take 10 years, but you can take 10 years, right? Studying something if you're lucky and you don't necessarily have to have a lot of publications at that time. Uh, or you only publish something if it really is important to publish it, right? So I think there are, you know, downsides and benefits to both of those settings. But um, I think what's, I think what's worrisome is um, the encouragement 
that we give to faculty to monetize their research because um, universities can make money off of that. You know, the university wants to monetize its science uh, in ways. So to the extent that they do, right, and the extent, then if that's worrisome to people that will maybe financial considerations are influencing your research uh, or what you're trying to do with your research discoveries, then is that really any different than the worries people have about Pfizer and why they're doing things the way, because they're just trying to monetize, you know, what they're doing. So, so I, I don't know how prudent it is for universities to go too far down the road of commercializing their discoveries. I mean, you could make the case, well, rather than Pfizer getting all the money, maybe we should try to keep as much of the money for the University of California as we can, right? I mean, it's it's complicated, but uh, I don't think it's very smart to think that we don't need to worry about the financial incentives that we give ourselves to try to monetize our research. And when you say the university makes the money, does any of that go back to the researchers actually creating this new technology drug, whatever it may be, or is it going to the university as a whole, which they will then reallocate for more research? It's my understanding that it's a little bit of both. I mean, I don't, uh, because typically, right, faculty are going to be, encouraged, at least permitted, if not encouraged, to um, develop their or establish their own companies, right? And have an ownership, either own them or have an ownership in or partner with existing companies uh, and reap financial rewards from doing that. But the university also has an ownership claim on the faculty's research. So it's my understanding that typically there's a sharing of the profits, Right. Like, and I, th I think like UC Davis makes at least 10 million bucks a year as an institution from its strawberry patents. Hmm. Right. And where that $10 million goes into the system every year, you know, some of it may go to the president's office uh, or for all I know, it may all stay within UC Davis. Right. But, um, you know, it's, uh, and I think it's safe to say not a lot of universities, you know, make hundreds of millions of dollars a year. You know, that's going to be the exception yeah. rather than the rule. But every university is <laughs> – most major institutions think that, oh, if we – and because you can see them for the last 20 years or so pursuing this strategy. Well, um, Aggie Square – Perfect example. Let's bring industry literally to campus mm -hmm. and let's have our faculty partner with industry partners and it's going to drive discovery and we're going to all benefit financially. Uh, that model has been tried all around the country. Uh, and, you know, there's some success, but um, I don't, not many institutions have gotten super rich off of it. Uh, from the intellectual discoveries. Mm -hmm. They may have made money as landlords, you know, 
Yeah. It just sounds like a huge double-edged sword of profits incentivize creation, new technologies, innovation, but they also incentivize greed and Mm -hmm. kind of asking the question, where's the balance between both? Because when you talked about it before, professors at on campus can only do so much risk-taking, groundbreaking research because mm-hmm. there are so many deadlines, funding, approvals. So that leaves the private industry, it sounds like, to take the biggest risks mm-hmm. because they could yeah. get the biggest rewards. But is there proper And a lot oversight? of people in private industry lose a lot of money in the process. Yes. Right? Because yes. they bet on the wrong horse, so to speak. Yeah. And that sounds like it's necessary to do that. Yeah. But is there proper oversight to make sure that their research is also ethical and for the right reasons? And it sounds like it's not. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> I think it depends on how cynical you want to be. Uh and what I've learned over the years is I, I think, you know, it's hard not to be cynical, but you take and it gets it gets back to those primary versus secondary endpoints. Mm-hmm. And let's just stick with drug discovery, uh, because that's, you know, sort of what I'm most familiar with. But what's a primary endpoint? Why do we as a public support biomedical research? We want better treatments to help patients who are sick, right? Okay, how do we get those better treatments? Well, we set up something called the FDA, and the FDA gets to decide what our new treatments are, right? Well, how do you do that? Well, you somebody has to come and apply for a new drug license to us. So that's where Pfizer comes in, right? What's Pfizer's primary endpoint? To come to better treat disease or to sell a product? Well, if the only way you can sell a product is that if it truly works, then there's nothing to worry about. But history shows that it's very possible and very lucrative to market products that aren't very good. And you can persuade the FDA to approve those products because you show them some of the science rather than all of the science. Hmm. Or you get something marketed for one reason, or you get something approved for one reason, and then you market it for another, which is primarily what cost Pfizer that $2.3 billion. Even though in some instances, apparently they knew they had data that showed that if we use this drug in this area that it was not approved for, the safety information doesn't look so good, right? But there are financial, you know, okay, we've got a license from the FDA. Uh, what do we want to do? We want to sell as much of it as we possibly can. So, and if we only sell it in this one narrow area, we're not going to make near as much money as if we sell it you know, in these six areas. Uh, So all we have to do is persuade physicians to prescribe this drug. So we put a lot, we put a whole bunch more money in our marketing of the drug than we do in discovery of drugs. 
because that's where the financial incentives are. So that's how, you know, the secondary endpoints are what's driving corporate behavior. And sometimes they align with the primary endpoint that the public invests in and supports. And a lot of the time it doesn't. But so long as all we focus on are the secondary outcomes or our system is all about secondary outcomes as opposed to primary ones, you know, we're not going to make much progress. Have you seen any shift in the medical field asking more questions about how do we create a healthy population versus how do we fix a sick population? (laughs) Go talk to uh, the... uh, Department of Public Health Sciences or any pub or, you know, this is a really old debate, right? But just from a purely, it's a debate about do we have the right priorities, right? The critics historically of the U.S. healthcare system is this. We don't have a healthcare system. We have a sick care system, right? We spend, and I, I haven't looked at these figures in a long time, but you know, 12, 15 years ago, I know that like, I think if you look at all the money that's spent in our healthcare system, like 4% of it is spent on public health. But that's clearly, you know, if you're interested in having a healthy population, right? I mean, look at how many billions of dollars have we put into cancer research, right? Versus basic public health measures. Uh, And, you know, indoor plumbing has done a little more for increasing human longevity, you know, than, than anything else. Right. And those kind of sort of basic public health measures, but, you know, there's not much money in that. Uh, and, And there's all kinds of reasons why that's the case, but yeah, to, to answer your question, that's uh, there's not a. I think most people who study public health would argue our system is skewed way too much towards sickness as opposed to health. Where do we go from here? How would you like to see the system change? And what can students do to get involved in research? That benefits society in a real level. Yeah. Um, I'll t- <laughs> I think, you know, if I were <laughs> ruler of the world or ruler of the research world, I would test something. And I don't know if I could persuade anyone else to test it or not, but I think it would be worth the research community self-imposing an obligation on itself to we will only solicit the public's trust, whether that's through money, volunteers for clinical trials, whatever, so that it's possible for us to do our research. We will only solicit their trust when we are satisfied that we deserve the trust that we're soliciting. I think if people in the research community and positions of leadership took that, would impose that obligation upon themselves, you would see, you could see major changes uh, in the culture. And if you can change the culture, then you should see 
changes in practice. And I'll just give you one example. Um, that, that's sort of an experiment that people could do. In any of the sciences at UC Davis, um, natural sciences, physical sciences, you know, social sciences, behavioral sciences, look at all the public comments of the deans of the relevant schools, find the minutes from the departmental meetings, uh, public comments of the chancellor, uh, vice chancellors, and just do a word search for reproducibility crisis because there's been a lot of contention for many years now that there's, quote, a reproducibility crisis in research, which means people, you, you find a published study, someone does that same study to the extent that they can, and there's, um, and they get very different results. So uh, the concern is that there's lots of inaccurate research findings in the literature. Um, so much so that people for well over a decade have been calling it a crisis. Well, see how many people in positions of influence in institutions where a lot of that research gets done publicly. Is there even curiosity about whether or not there is a crisis? And or whether or not there's anything real here, and should we be trying to do anything about it? You'll find some faculty and graduate students who talk about it, but um, I would hypothesize <laughs> that you might get 10 hits, you know, like one hit per year in those public comments, uh, minutes from, or just look at the agenda. Right. And that, that may sound silly because, oh, my God, Mark, you know, a committee or a department meeting, you know, you're going to talk about who's going to teach what or, you know, X, Y or Z. But, you know, if the institution cared about that, they you there would be a paper trail that they cared about it. If there's not a paper trail, what does that say? Um. And, and I should say there are some people who poo-poo the hype, the reproducibility crisis. Oh, there's nothing here. Don't bother. Move on. Um, but I think it's getting more and more difficult to maintain that point of view. But I think it, I would hypothesize <laughs> that if UC Davis says our science is science, the public can trust, you would see a paper trail about quality concerns in biomedical research. And um, and I don't by saying all this, I don't mean to suggest that I don't have any scientific colleagues who are interested in and focused on these issues. There are, uh, you know, and I've had great conversations with many of them. But um, I'm but to a large extent, there's just a wall of si silence about these issues. And has any large academic institution made any public statements about this? Um, I am aware. 
Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are, there's a whole field now that's known as sort of meta research or meta science. And, uh, and it's driven largely by people trained in the sciences. Many of them are also uh, researchers. Um, as the field sort of develops, now people are learning how to do research about research without actually, you know, doing research. Um, but the field started, was started mainly by people who actually do research, and they were concerned by the quality and reproducibility of research. So, yeah, there's an international community that's focused on these issues, but they're by and large off in a world to themselves. And, um, and while they have developed recommendations out the wazoo about how we might redress some of these problems, if most of the people don't think there's a problem to be solved, then, then their proposed solutions aren't being tested. But there was one institution, the medical school at the University of Utrecht, um, they had a dean who thought that the status quo was unjustifiable and wanted to change things. And he tried, and he did make very real changes to lessen the pressure to have X number of publications. Uh, pretty much required faculty to start working with private citizens in the community to, to hear what the community is interested in and how, uh, so that their research questions could be, they could be more confident that their research questions were actually relevant to the people who were paying for their research. Um, and it had a very positive impact on the institution. And, um, and there are people who are trying to work on getting more appropriate metrics uh, used by institutions uh, as they assess faculty. But, you know, it's very, very incremental progress. Uh, and, you know, um, and it's just not a primary focus, you know. Yeah. It sounds like we need, like, radical transparency mm -hmm. in a lot of this. And it, hearing this whole conversation, it's the it's about the people performing the research and their own biases and attachment to their work, how they're humans too, and they operate in the same society we do. And as the as society gets more div divided and more pulled in all these different directions, it's going to influence the research. And then there's the profit motives and it's not a, the system isn't one system, it seems. It's every system playing some sort of role. Mm -hmm. And I think we just need to talk more about it. And I hope we're doing that here today. And yeah. Could, yeah. No, I, you know, I would really encourage people, you know, if you're interested, I'd say, hey, you know, I, I could be totally full of crap here. Right. I'm just a philosopher talking about what scientists are doing. Mm -hmm. You know, don't necessarily take me at my word. Right. Uh, feel free to be critical, challenge, you know, go out and talk to other people who may have a completely different point of view. But, um, you know, I don't 
the things I say, I don't say lightly. I say them sadly in many ways because, you know, I think biomedical research is one of the most important things, you know, we do. Um, but we could just be a lot better at it and we could have a lot better system than we currently do. Definitely. For the UC Davis students, you mentioned in our previous discussion about a lab that you think is doing it right. Could you explain more well, what's going on there? Yeah, there is uh, two or three years, I think in 2020, UC Davis, there was a group at the ag school, um, UC Davis, UC Berkeley, Cornell, and I think the University of Indiana, they got a big five-year grant from the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the National Science Foundation to look at the contributions, the beneficial contributions that artificial intelligence could have in the food systems. And uh, there had to be an ethics component to all of the grants. And what we did... Um, for the UC Davis, uh, which was fortunate enough to be funded. So what now was part of the UC Davis initiative is to see if you can create a focus within that research group on uh, trying to assure the trustworthiness of the research. So we've uh, so there are a group of people working on that. And so it's an opportunity to see if you can interest a group of researchers on really engaging this question about can we be confident that the public can trust the public and others, right? Commercial partners, farmers, uh, food sellers, right? Can they trust the work we're doing in AI to improve the food system? And the person, uh, if, if students would like to learn more and possibly, uh, you know, be involved, the person they should contact is Dr. Carrie Alexander. Um, and uh, she should come up, you know, in the uh, email system. But um, we'll and, put it and, on the website, too. Yeah. Yeah. And the, yeah, AFIS, it's A-I-F-S is the website and there you can find the there's a socio and ethics cluster research cluster and that's where this project is Amazing. and uh, and we're about a little over a year into that effort yeah with ai a lot of people have a pretty cynical view of what that'll look like for the future largely for like the working class mm-hmm and we mentioned how maybe a transparency system could do a lot of good for academia, but then that calls into question the integrity of the people that are involved in that system. Do you think AI could be a potential solution to the development of a transparency system in academia? Boy, I, all I could do is make an educated guess, but I would say... Yeah, I'm sure, right? Because it can accelerate our computational abilities. It can, you know, scan inf and aggregate information uh, and make things more transparent uh, that currently is, even though the information is out there, people don't know it, 
right? Because they just don't have the time and energy or skills to bring it together. Uh, but yeah, AI can, you know, can solve that problem. Uh, you know, it's just the question is, will it be used to solve that problem? Right. Um, or will people be threatened by it or will people, you know, use it to manipulate views and opinions? Right. I mean, it's, I guess AI is going to prove to be like every other technology, right? It's just, it's not so much the tool, but what it's used for, right? And who controls it. In finance, there's a huge focus right now on ESG, like ethical, quote unquote, ethical investing. Mm -hmm. Do you see that playing a role in research? Be And do you think the financial is there financial incentives available to then have the investors kind of mandate ethical solutions i think history shows thus far that anytime the funders have focused on ethics it hasn't been very meaningful right um that's why i think <laughs> I think ethics sort of has gotten a bad name in the research and scientific community because it's become, it's very easy to equate ethics with all of these mandates. Oh, ethics is about this course that tells us that we shouldn't plagiarize, right? Well, sort of how insulting and infantilizing is that? If you, do you want to go sit in a classroom and have someone tell you, hey, you shouldn't cheat, right? You know. All the ethical issues in my field, whatever it is, right? And this is what you wanted me to spend my time on, right? It's it's sort of counterproductive. But um, there's another way to look at ethics, which is ethics is all about aspiring to do good, Right. And so if we could put time and energy into creating, demanding from ourselves that we focus on what is the good we're trying to do and what is our ability to actually do those things and how well do the tools that we use to do those things, how well do they work? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? When we find a weakness, you know, we we try to uh, strengthen that weakness, eliminate it or strengthen it as opposed to simply deferring everything to the peer review process. All right. Uh, those are two very different worlds. Definitely. And so, you know, just as much as ethics has been used to sort of browbeat people that they shouldn't plagiarize. I like to think that you could use ethics as a source of improvement and inspiration. Definitely. And do you think that shift would be best served top down or bottom up? I think the bottom up is already happening to the extent that it's going to happen. When it's bottom up, it's at the discretion of individual faculty and, you know, and students, right? To have a more systematic effect, I think leadership has leadership is essential, right? If leadership is absent on these issues, then the institution is not 
going to be as focused on these issues as they need to be. And that, you know, and that can be dicey because, you know, we as a faculty member, right? So, oh my God, yet another vision statement from the chancellor who's only going to be here for two years and he or she is going to go somewhere else and the new one's going to come in and they're going to have their pet project and none of this is going to mean anything, right? I mean, there's that's the problem with wanting leadership to be involved. But if, um, but I think there is, I still think you need leadership, but uh, leadership has to listen as much as lead, I think. But none of that's going to happen until people acknowledge that change is needed. Definitely. And, and it's nobody's job to solve the problems that we've been talking about. No, nobody is empowered or expected to solve these problems because a lot of people would say these aren't real problems. A lot of these issues seem rather daunting. And as you mentioned, they're often viewed as either unsolvable or not really important. What advice do you have for students in particular on how they can think about these problems and what they can do to empower themselves to solve them? Yeah. Well, I would go back to my, you know, uh, response about feeling obligated to only solicit trust when you're confident you deserve it. So the way you can operationalize that, beginning now in a student role, when whatever area of research you're focused on, so like ask yourself, what is it that people are being asked to trust the research community to do? Is the way the research is going about conducting its research what are the mechanisms in place that support the trustworthiness of that research? And how well do those mechanisms work? How much information can you find out there about how well they work or don't work, right? I mean, I, I think you can just, you know, focus while you're doing research or learning about research, look at the trustworthiness of that research at the same time and how you even ponder how you answer the question how how easy is it to answer the question how do we know if we can trust this research or not um so you know there you can sort of become familiar with all the different moving parts of the system and its efficiencies and inefficiencies its strengths and weaknesses and you know how much transparency if you find a problem how much transparency is there around the problem you know, where's the history of people trying to address the problem? And if everything is just a mystery, right, that's not good. Uh, but maybe you can find a way to make it less mysterious. And just, you know, just talk to individual faculty, you know, about these questions and see, you know, how receptive they are and how and whether or not they think they're important. Well, Professor Yarborough, this has been not only insightful, but I think we got a lot of wisdom out of this conversation. So thank you very much for your time. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm so glad y'all got in touch with me. So thank you. Yeah, th thank you. 
To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you will find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.